0: What's up, everybody? This is Ralph Amston with the Devil's Junkie Podcast. Another on the road edition as I drive from Eugene, Oregon, to Portland on a beautiful Sunday after Arizona State unfortunately falls thirty-one to twenty-nine. It's been a while. It's been a while since Arizona State has had an opportunity to get a win in Austin, two thousand four. In fact, most of the most of the defense that was starting on the field. Uh, this almost all-freshman defense, uh, they were just four years old the last time Arizona State got a win in Eugene, and that streak is going to stay alive for at least another couple of years. I'll let you think about that while we hit the music.
1: I was living in a devil town.
0: I didn't
1: know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.
0: All right, so if you are new to the show, you might be a little bit confused because uh, it sounds like this podcast is being recorded from inside a moving vehicle. And it is it is. Uh, this is something that I've been doing for the last few years uh, when traveling after road games just sort of uh, going through my thoughts on Arizona State uh, stream of consciousness style and uh, and for some reason people seem to be listening to it. If you've been listening for a while then you've probably heard a few of these but uh, I figure there's got to be a couple of new people since we're, we're getting to the point where there's a couple thousand listeners every single week. So welcome aboard. Yes I'm inside a car. Yes I am being safe uh, and sometimes there's more traditional interviews uh episodes with interviews and guests and everything like that uh but for the most part these post game episodes if they're at Sun Devil Stadium have been uh Chili and I just discussing everything that, that that goes down and and um when it's when it's just me on the road uh you know whether it's the drive back from from San Diego State or or uh you know the the drive before the flight home from Colorado uh, you know, I, I just like to try to decompress, talk a little bit about what I saw, uh, a little bit about what I think it means um, for Arizona State, for the future, and there's a lot to talk about when it comes to this game uh, at, at Oregon, I think was a must-win. Arizona State put itself in a situation where everything became a must-win, but ultimately it worked out that they control their own destiny, right? So... <clears throat> The way that it worked is if Arizona State beat UCLA and they beat Oregon, they would have a chance to play the University of Arizona to be the Pac-12 South champion. I don't like that phrase very much, the Pac-12 South champion. They would have a chance to play for the Pac-12 South championship as a representative of this side of the conference no that's too much of a mouthful we'll just say Pac-12 South champion they would have had a chance to be the Pac-12 South champion instead Utah a team Arizona State beat uh is actually going to be playing the winner of the Apple Cup Washington and Washington State on December 1st so Arizona State out of the mix you know they, they can feel good about some of the things that they've done this year beating Utah beating UCLA beating USC um They they probably feel not so good about some of the other things that happened, uh, especially going down to Colorado and effectively being Mike McIntyre's last ever victory as head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes. I don't know if they're actually going to keep Mike McIntyre on to try to coach this last game for for Colorado as they try to become bowl eligible, but at the time, when Colorado got that win against Arizona State at home, they were 5-0 since then they've dropped six straight games they look like a broken team completely lost team they were trying to give Arizona State an assist yesterday and almost did they went up seven nothing against Utah at Folsom Field in Boulder Colorado in the snow and um, just fell apart from there they don't look like a team that quit they don't look like a talentless team they look broken they look like they don't even know how to function, and I don't know what did that to them. Uh, I did just leave Corvallis where I was visiting a couple of former Chandler High players uh, who, who I enjoyed watching play in, in high school and were uh, members of the 2014 state champion Chandler Wolves who are up playing for the Oregon State Beavers uh, right now, and they, they lost on the road at Washington just kind of getting the lay of the land of the Pac-12 and their experience in playing the Pac-12 and everything like that. And, uh, and they admitted that, that uh, they, they knew going into the game against Colorado that that was supposed to be Colorado's get right game. That Colorado, you know, they, they were heavily favored, and Oregon State was able to steal that. And ever since then, it just hasn't really been the same. And so the Colorado ends up being Mike McIntyre's, uh, or Arizona State ends up being Mike McIntyre's final win, uh, I think, as head coach of Colorado, uh, assuming that his firing was effective immediately. And, I mean, that, that essentially puts Arizona State in a position where some of their losses aren't even really all that impressive. And some of their wins are looking less impressive as well. After Brian Lewerke was injured, not able to quarterback Michigan State against Nebraska, and Nebraska ends up beating them on field goals. So things aren't looking very good, and it's really a week-to-week mood swing thing with this Arizona State football team, isn't it? And the mood can't be very good after this loss at Oregon because like much of, well, all five losses this season have come by one score or less. Like those losses, there were opportunities for Arizona State to win. Maybe unlike those losses, you really feel like, if you're an Arizona State fan, that Arizona State went out of their way to lose this game. Some things conspired to uh, assist in Arizona State's demise that were outside of Arizona State's control, and we will get to those things. But a, a lot of what Arizona State did was self-inflicted. At Austin, a lot of what they did is self-inflicted. And yes, this team struggles on the road, and yes, this team has had to make adjustments uh, offensively this year. Even though they do have a now, they do now have a thousand-yard receiver to go along with a fourteen-hundred-yard rusher. There's talent on the team, but the offense has sputtered a little bit, yes. The road has been tough, yes. The different times of day for every game has been tough, yes. But if you watch this game, there's absolutely no reason that Arizona State should have come out on the losing end. They ultimately end up leaving the game in the hands of the refs, which is never a good idea to do anyway, especially in the Pac-12. But especially if you're Arizona State and you're playing against Oregon given the history of what happened in 2015 in triple overtime, of the refs not calling an offsides penalty that led to an interception, of Devon Carrington definitely stepping out of bounds, and that still counting as a touchdown for Oregon. I mean, just given that history, just understanding that, just understanding the way the Pac-12 works, you can't use the officiating as as an excuse. It might have worked for a while, but at this point you have to plan You have to plan to not be able to depend on that element of the game. And let's be real about it. These refs were attempting to give Arizona State the game on several occasions. They were trying to give ASU this win. If replay didn't exist, Nikhil Harry has two big catches that put Arizona State in a position to continue drives and ultimately possibly win this game. But Nikhil Harry gets two catches taken away because the turf monster snuck up and got a piece of the ball. Uncharacteristic for Nikhil, but it wasn't just him dropping passes. It was quite a few receivers. The refs tried. They tried to swing this Arizona State's way. And you might not want to hear that if you're an Arizona State fan, given what ultimately happened and the fact that with the amount of things that went under review in this game that probably the most important Uh, Play didn't one that might have been overturned and ruled in Arizona State's favor in Frank Darby's uh, two point conversion that wasn't but here I am talking about the refs when I'm trying to tell you you shouldn't think or talk about the refs so I'm not being very helpful right now to your grieving and healing process I will say this I am very curious as to how Arizona State fans feel about this season because here's ASU at 6-5 going into the Territorial Cup with the same exact record that they had last year same record that they had last year coming off the same type of situation in which they lost a road game that they shouldn't have lost self-inflicted terrible coaching decisions and mistakes at UCLA Put Arizona State in a position where they finish the regular season with seven wins instead of eight, which Hode Rubino has talked about at length on DevilsDigest.com, could have ultimately contributed to the fact that Herm Edwards is the coach now. And because Herm Edwards is the coach now, we have to hearken back to the vision that Ray Anderson outlined when he named Herm Edwards coach, and prior to the I'm air quoting coaching search for Herm Edwards that this is a team that he wants to compete for conference championships, so they almost were. This is a team that he wants to consistently be in the top three of the Pac-12 and competitively consistent in such a way that they compete for top 15 rankings nationwide. He wants four- and five-star recruits. He wanted all these things. But here Arizona State is, one year after going to the Territorial Cup at six and five, six and five going into the Territorial Cup. So the question that I posed to subscribers on devilsdigest.com and to the people who follow me on Twitter at Ralph Amston was, what is your perspective on Arizona State, given that you you have to pay attention to the fact that Arizona State is in the exact same position as it was last year going into the Territorial Cup? How do you feel? Better? worse ambivalent I got some fantastic responses and that's how I'm gonna end the podcast is reading and reacting to some of those I might we're we're getting to the point where I might actually have to cut a few because I of course I'm what would want to go through and read all 50 50 that that you guys sent me Um but I, I, some of them probably say some similar things. So I'm going to try to whittle it down. But I want to read as many as possible because that's one of my absolute favorite things to do as part of the Devil's Junkie podcast is get your reactions um, and, and respond to those and give you a voice. You take the time to listen to this podcast. You deserve to have your perspective heard and, and sussed out. And maybe you don't like the way that I suss it out. And maybe you don't like the, the, the way that I uh, get into it. Or maybe I'm misinterpreting. Always send me your tweets. Uh, if, if I react in such a way that makes it seem like uh, maybe I'm grumpy and I, I, I don't like that type of engagement, just ignore me. It's football season. I cover high school and college. I don't sleep much. Don't pay attention to anything I have to say. Just give yourself an opportunity to be heard, and I I, I do want to hear it because I think the the perspective of this fan base definitely matters, and, and I think that there are times when this fan base, this Arizona fan base, is heard out. Uh, by the people that matter most. And I think that there's some times when, when they aren't and you feel like you're just kind of yelling at a brick wall and you, you don't have uh, a say in the process. And again, I'm not saying that you should have control over the day-to-day decisions that the team that you root for makes. Um, but at the same time, if, if your opinion on the team uh, or about the team or about something that they're doing is uh, is an insightful perspective based in you know in, in the amount of time and energy that you spend investing into paying attention to this program. Then I think that that's something that uh, that, that deserves a little bit of a of an amplification, right? So uh, feel free to send me how you feel about this team. Uh, if you if you, if you you haven't already, because I might follow up this podcast with another one, I do want to spend some time talking about this basketball team that Arizona State put together. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of Charlie Turner Thorne and what the women are doing. Um, but I think that a lot of people want to hear a little bit more about uh, this this basketball team that is currently sitting at 3-0. Uh, and, and if you haven't, make sure that you check out the uh, Pull Up Jays podcast from Jordan K and Jeff Griffith as part of devilsdigest.com on the Rivals Network. Both are basketball fanatics. They play off each other really well. It's a podcast that I actually listen to. So I wouldn't wouldn't go out and tell you to listen to anything that I'm not listening to myself. Um, I vouch for it. It's a lot of fun if you're a basketball fan. I think you would enjoy it too. So let's get back to this whole thing. As I'm passing through Salem, Oregon, which reminds me of my all-time favorite short story. I I went to Arizona State. I was a a dual major. I was a creative writing major, uh, and then I was in the Cronkite School and pursuing radio broadcasting. And uh, I was pursuing that double major. Somehow came out of Arizona State um, after only two and a half years with a degree in neither one of those things, uh, majored in literature, which uh, if you're in a position... position to take out a bunch of government loans that can't be forgiven so that you can have a liberal arts degree that really doesn't translate into being able to do anything other than teach that same material that was taught to you you got to go for it right you gotta put yourself in a position to be in debt for a really long time because you were super into uh, short stories and old works that, uh, that, that that other people wrote a really long time ago and, uh, and, and, and that's what I did so um, as I'm passing through Salem Oregon it reminds me of my all time favorite short story um, from a woman named Ursula Le Guin who uh, I haven't read all of her sci-fi stuff um, I actually haven't read very much of it uh, I know that she has some really really big fans for some of the things that she uh, wrote and put together and and uh, from everything I've heard she was absolutely fantastic uh, in life she did pass away this year so rest in peace Ursula Le Guin but she wrote a short story that I absolutely adore probably my favorite short story that anybody ever wrote ever uh, very influential actually on me and the way that I think and the way that I go about things um, it's called uh, The Ones That Walk Away From omalis and O'Malus is just Salem Oregon backwards uh, but the, the entire point of this short story that she put together, and again, I'm, I'm just obsessed with this story, I read it probably once a month, uh, think on it all the time because it's the ultimate what if. It's a town of people. Omalus is this town of people uh, where it's essentially a utopia, right? Everything there is perfect. Everybody has a job. Um, there's no disease. There's no grief. There's harmony. There's no war. There's no sadness. There's no guilt. Um, but the one thing that she goes to point out is that this is not the type of utopia where it's like heaven it's not a goody two shoes utopia um it's it's anything that you it's almost hedonistic like everything is good plus all of the things that are your vices can't harm you so you can engage in those vices uh, and be fine and not have the hurt and the destruction that come along with it. So she says, like, if, if you don't believe that such a place can exist and you think it's too corny or whatever, uh, imagine that it's not just a utopia, but there's all these things you wouldn't expect of a utopia, like drinking and drugs and orgies and music and all of these other things, right? And, the, and, and you can't be harmed by them. So you can engage in your vices and you're fine. Everything about this place is absolutely perfect. But somewhere... Somewhere in this town is a house and in this house is a basement and in the basement they keep a deformed, ageless figure that looks like it was once a young boy uh, but is uh, uh, effectively mute, dumb, blind, handicapped and is kept in a closet. And every single citizen of the town, when they come of age, they are taken to this basement and they are shown this kid, or what should be a kid. And they're made to understand that the only way that Omalus, this perfect society, society, can exist is if this one person suffers. So this one person lives a life of complete suffering, despicable conditions locked in a closet in a basement of a house and you have to see it once you don't ever have to see it ever again but you do have to see it once so everybody in the town is introduced to this super tragic terrible unjust awful situation and then from that point they have to decide what to do do you go out and do you enjoy your life in Omelus, in this perfect society, understanding that it's only perfect because you now understand what imperfection is, what injustice is? The fruit is sweeter, the, you know, everything, the sun is brighter, everything is better, the smells are better, the tastes are better, but only because you understand you know, the sweet is sweet because of the salt. That the shadow proves the sunshine. The shadowy, terrible thing uh, proves how good everything else is. So do you go out and do you live in this society understanding that this one injustice makes it possible for you to enjoy just how incredible and perfect this place that you live is? Or, or does seeing this injustice in this basement, in this house, in the middle of Omelas, does it do something to you that causes you to want to act, to want to leave? And obviously with the title of the short story being the ones that walk away from Omelas, I think she's painting the heroes as the people who essentially see that and they leave and they go live elsewhere in worse places that are not utopias, that do have all of the terrible things, but at least they have a basic understanding that there's no hypocrisy involved. So you might be listening to this, and and again, if you're new to this podcast, sometimes I talk about things uh, that don't feel like they tie in uh, at all in any way, shape, or form. I think a couple of episodes ago, I talked at length about a Chevelle album where the only song that sucked was the the title track. And at this point, I don't even remember why I was talking about that. But I feel like I made it uh, tie into ASU football somehow. So if you're new to this and you wonder why I'm... I'm, uh, going on and on about a short story written by Ursula Le Guin just because I'm currently driving through Salem, Oregon. Uh, One, I owe ASU and the government a lot of money. So it makes me feel like I'm actually making use of this degree uh, because, you know, I, I went the sports reporter route and you don't do a whole lot of literature in sports reporting. So that would probably be reason number one, if I'm being honest. And the other thing is this. There are problems with this Arizona State team. They are very obvious. But those problems might actually, while they are turning some people off, and while some people are very frustrated, and some people have almost developed an ideology uh, based in those frustrations, to some people, those problems Actually, highlight some of the good and some of the progress. And let me tell you, let me tell you what I mean. Yesterday against Oregon, six freshmen were on the field at any given time. Jalen Harvey didn't make the trip. Demonte King didn't play. You have Cam Phillips, true freshman, out there at safety. You have a Shari Crosswell, true freshman, out there as a sort of utility defensive back in the 3-3-5. Tyler Johnson, redshirt freshman. Jermaine Lolle, at this point, I think we can just call him the starter, is a freshman defensive lineman. I mean, you've got Chase Lucas, redshirt sophomore, didn't play defensive back in high school. You've got Merlin Robertson, who missed the first half and stepped in uh, to change the game in the second half which we'll get into a little bit you've got Darian Butler who recovered a fumble true freshman from Narbonne who I feel like at this point we just have to admit as rivals as a company needs to go to more Narbonne football games as Jamar Jefferson running back at Oregon State has broken their all-time freshman season uh, single season record for rushing yards with over 1300 and Darian Butler has started from the get-go for Arizona State. I mean, you got freshmen everywhere. And Evan Fields had a lot of playing time as well. And he, I think if the if the old redshirt rules had been in place, might have actually counted as a redshirt last year. But as it stands, I think he's a sophomore. Kyle Soley, redshirt freshman. This is a young, inexperienced defense. You had Shannon Foreman out there. Um, part of what that defense being out there did was essentially cause Arizona State to, to go through a, a little bit of a rude awakening University of Oregon put up 28 points in that first half now, Oregon is no stranger to fast starts this year. You might think that Oregon is, is down and out this year. Uh, I think they're sitting at 7-4 right now. But you have to understand that in games that the University of Oregon has scored at least 17 points in the first half, they're 7-1. and one. And that one loss was the freak accident loss that Pac-12 refs didn't do them any favors in to Stanford earlier in the season. Should be 8-0. In games where they score at least 20 points in the first half, as they did against Arizona State yesterday, they're 6-1. Games in which University of Oregon is held under 17 points in the first half this year, they're 0-3. Fast starts is how Oregon wins, and they've done it to much better and much more experienced defenses than Arizona State this year. And Arizona State is forced to come into this game With a rusty J.J. Wilson in place of Merlin Robertson, who's been your defensive MVP. No Demonte King, who has been on the field for almost every single play this year. You know, and so, and and then you have, you have, you know, a Sherry Crosswell, who is still sort of figuring things out. He's gotten a lot of snaps, but you know he's good for—he's good for getting burned once or twice a game, as much as he's good for a big play once a game as well. So you look at this and you say, "Man, this is actually not necessarily a good thing." If you want to compete for Pac-12 championships, you can't be running a bunch of freshmen out there, and that could turn you off to this team and the way they've done things, and maybe for some people, the fact that they're starting a lot of these freshmen over guys who have a lot more experience is something that might turn them off. Or the fact that they're just losing games, period, but they can't get it right on on the road will turn you off. At the same time, some of you realize that this bump in the road, that playing all these freshmen, the fact that they were able to make these adjustments at halftime, this seemingly bad thing that it definitely probably caused Arizona State to lose... Does paint a picture of a possibly brighter future. Some of the other problems that that Arizona State, uh, you know, is essentially having, not necessarily being able to get things right on the offensive side of the ball, and knowing that a lot of these guys aren't going to be back next year: Nikhil, Harry, Manny Wilkins, Casey Tucker. Quinn Bailey, very possibly Cole Cabral, I'll just throw that out there, just maybe, we'll see. A lot of these uh, big offensive pieces that are, are, are very important to what Arizona State does offensively, they're not coming back. But at the same time, there's some promise, right? You have Eno Benjamin having the best season in modern history of any Arizona State running back. He had his eighth game of over 100 yards rushing. Eight games of over 100 yards rushing in a single season. Not sure that's ever been done before at Arizona State. Not only that, he had 41 yards on his first five carries, which ultimately ended up being more total net yards that Arizona State had rushing in the entire first half somehow mind-boggling. So he gets shut down, and then he comes back in the second half, and he's even stronger and tacks on about 110 more yards rushing. Everything about this team that's frustrating, everything about this team that uh, makes you want to throw in the towel, that makes you not want to watch, also illustrates opportunity for improvement and also illustrates uh, the areas in which you're starting to see some seeds sprout. So maybe it's not the best analogy in the world. But I thought of it because I'm driving through Salem, Oregon, and again, I owe the government a lot of money for my lit degree. But that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma you're faced with as a fan, right? You love being a fan so much. But what comes with being a fan is understanding that unless you're an Alabama fan or unless you're a New England Patriots fan over the last 15 years, that sometimes times are going to be really tough in order to be a fan of Arizona State football, in order to enjoy the sweetness that comes with being part of the Sun Devil community, you also have to take what comes along with it, which is typically a loss every single year against the University of Oregon, which is terrible, terrible referees, which is coaching decisions that make you scratch your head but could ultimately work out for the best. You have to ask yourself the question, are these things that I find to be incredibly frustrating and distasteful ultimately worth it? Or does the sour make the sweet even sweeter? If Arizona State finds a way under Herm Edwards and Rob Likens and Danny Gonzalez to finally put things together in such a way that those five losses by one score or more can tilt to three wins and two losses. Just split it down the middle like that. And then you're in a position of having nine wins going into the Territorial Cup. And I think that's where you want to be as an Arizona State fan. You want to head into the Territorial Cup chasing the Pac-12 South. are not fans of Ray Anderson and his vision want the same thing that Ray Anderson wants. They just don't necessarily agree on the best way to get there. So whereas the people that are heroes uh, in Ursula Le Guin's story, the ones that walk away from O'Manless, are the people that say, you know, I've had enough of this. I know that things are great, and I know that the only way that I know that things are great is because something is really, really bad. I'm gonna walk away so that there's no hypocrisy and I don't have to deal with with having to weigh the good against the bad. Whereas those people might be the heroes in her story, I think the hero of, of any fan story is one that can say, yes, Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott does a terrible job. Yes, I am not able to watch these games in ways that are convenient and cheap and easy. Yes, if I do turn these games on, the referees are probably going to do something that makes me want to throw a chair through a window. Yes, the coaches that are on the staff make decisions that I don't necessarily understand or don't are, are antithetical to what seems to be a hundred years of common football knowledge. But when it goes right, when the ref doesn't say that Frank Darby's foot is out of bounds... When Arizona State doesn't give up a touchdown on a, a drive that lasts 50 seconds at the end of the first half. When Rennell Wren doesn't push over their offensive lineman when you have an opportunity to get a stop and at least get the ball back with two minutes left in the game. When those things don't happen and it does go your way, you remember when it didn't and it makes the victories that much more sweet. I don't know. Again, I just drove through this town And that's what I'm talking about now. So moving on to the actual result of the game. There's some things that I do want to get into. First of all, um, the quarterback is the most important player on the field. So let's talk about the quarterback. Let's talk about Manny Wilkins. At first glance, you're going to look at those stats and say this was a bad game. And it was. It was a bad game. But you can't entirely put the blame on Manny Wilkins here. I asked Rob Likens after the game was over, why are receivers all of a sudden dropping the ball? Was the coverage better? Did Jim Leavitt do something? Was it the temperature? Was it the stage, the noise? What was it? And Rob Likens says he doesn't know. He says he figures those guys are embarrassed by what happens, or by what happened against Oregon. That's not something that they wanted to happen. I Harry didn't want to drop two important balls, bounce off the turf, right? Brandon Ayuk didn't want to drop a second down pass that put him in third and long that ultimately resulted in a false start that turned into third and 15, which made Manny frustratedly run as fast as he could into a defender to try to truck the defender just to get some frustration out. I'm pretty sure Kyle Williams doesn't want to be having the season that he's having he's a team player as long as the team wins I think he's fine with having one catch or nine catches he's going to do whatever it takes whatever helps the team but at the same time they have him running these little slants and the ball's hitting him in the chest it's hitting him in the hands Are defenders getting there at the same time yeah are these routes showcating showcasing Kyle Williams strength as a receiver probably not but at the same time you got to catch those balls Who else? I mean, who else can we pick on? We have have people dropping passes all over the place. Frank Darby, another deep ball. Frank Darby, he gets loose. He's your deep threat, right? You got to grab some of those with your hands. Can't let everything fall in the basket. Can't let everything hit you in the body. Sometimes you got to turn around and high point the ball. The same way that you did at San Diego State, even though the refs didn't think that was a catch. So Frank Darby, uh, he dropped that pass from Dylan Sterling-Cole. You know, like it or not, that ball hit the turf at the end of the San Diego State game, giving Arizona State no chance to try to tie it up there at the end. Frank Darby's had some big drops. He had another one in Eugene. He adjusted to the route. He did everything he was supposed to, and the ball fell right through his hands. You can't have that. If you're Arizona State's quarterback... All you can do is hit an open Frank Darby. All you can do on third and long and second and long is hit Nikhil Harry and Brandon Ayuk. All you can do, apparently, in this game plan and in this offense is try to find a way to get Kyle Williams the ball in these little hitches and slants. And if they're not catching the ball, what can you do? I think that Manny Wilkins came into this game being sacked 11 times on the season. An incredible improvement for Arizona State. But look what happened at Oregon. The crowd is loud. I talked to one offensive lineman after the game. He said this is the loudest crowd that they've had this year. He said he's not sure if it was loud because Pac-12 crowds have been so bad and sparse this year everywhere they've went. Uh, Or if it just gets that loud at Autzen. And I've heard from plenty of players that that's one of the loudest places you can play. But they said it was tough said it was real tough and so you know Manny Wilkins gets hit four times one time because Quinn Bailey didn't know what to do on a defensive lineman stunt he left he, he left Stephen Miller to block both guys Manny Wilkins gets hit another time Alex Lasoya is absolutely blown off the ball which makes Manny Wilkins panic, and he ultimately fumbles. Arizona State gets it back, and it turns into a first down after a personal foul. But that's not the way you want to be getting first downs. You don't want to have to have your offensive lineman get blown up so that you fumble and somebody over-celebrates. You want to be able to just move the ball. The offensive line, you know, Zach Robertson, I think, had two false starts. You had a, a questionable holding call on Casey Tucker. You had an even more questionable holding call on Cole Cabral on a running play that was seemingly blown dead for stopping uh, forward progress. And and Cole Cabral was called for holding behind the play, for getting a player to the ground that, that wouldn't have had even anything to do with making a tackle on Eno Benjamin, who had already been stood up by other defenders. So you've got your defensive line getting hit with penalties. You've got illegal formations. You've got guys jumping. You've got receivers uh, dropping the ball. You're getting hit for the very first time. It's understandable that Manny Wilkins was frustrated. But it's getting to the point where we've seen this from Manny. When things aren't going his way, he shows his emotion on the field. He wears his emotions on his sleeve, and often one of his emotions frustration. And you can't tell me that this is the fifth or sixth time that we've seen him get upset or like he did when he took his fourth or I think we'll call it his third of four sacks. When he took his third of four sacks in the fourth quarter, picked up the ball, threw it through the back of the end zone, walked over to the bench upset, but then Nick Ralston recovers a muffed punt and Manny Wilkins is in the middle of like being frustrated and he has to turn around and get his head back in the game. He comes in and and can't connect on two passes, and lucky for ASU, Eno Benjamin was able to take over on that drive before Manny Wilkins was able to hit Brandon Ayuk on a short route that he turned into a 25-yard touchdown to get Arizona State back in that ballgame. But there's a lot of emotion from Manny Wilkins. He feels the pressure. He feels the tick-tock, constantly tick-tock, tick-tock. Your legacy is being defined in these games. It's a lot of pressure to be on that guy's shoulders. He does a really good job of not caring what people think about him in the moment. But long term, he wants to be thought of somebody who really brought it at Arizona State. And I feel like he did what he could. Some of his flaws were on full display, though. I got to thinking every time that he would panic and and try to get to full speed, and the way he scrambles, you figure, oh, you know, he might throw, he's not gonna throw. When he gets his feet moving back in the pocket, He's not looking to make a read. He might be still looking downfield, but he's not going to let go of that ball. He doesn't like to turn it over. He doesn't like to throw interceptions. He's going to run. And when you're as talented of an experienced as a defensive coordinator as Jim Levitt, you probably know this: that if you rattle (laughs) rattle Manny Wilkins, he's not going to throw the ball. When he gets to scrambling, when he hits top speed, he's going to try to turn it upfield. He's going to try to run. And he's not the best open field runner. He can create space by leaping over people. But he's not the fat, he's quick. Maybe the most, maybe the quickest quarterback Arizona State's ever put back there. But he runs with these long strides and he kind of runs into people. As he did on a third and 15 where he picked up eight yards. Probably maybe could have legged that out for 15 if he tried, but was frustrated and looked like he just turned right into the defender through his shoulder and went down. So if you're Jim Levitt, you probably realize Manny's going to scramble if you rattle him. And if they blitz or if they get to you with a four-man pass rush and they're also spying you with a linebacker, Manny Wilkins isn't going to really be able to do much. And if you're having to bring in extra protection, like a a tight end who isn't there to catch passes like Tommy Hudson, or you got Nick Ralston in the game, you have less options out there at wide receiver, it's going to be tough for Manny Wilkins to be able to make those decisions to get rid of the ball anyway. Because he doesn't want to turn the ball over to take some risk. He'll take the six-yard gain and the and the hit. He'll take the pain to keep the ball in Arizona State's possession. In these performances, Manny's flaws are on display, but so is his heart. He did a lot to try to get Arizona State that ball game. You have to wonder in some of these infances in the red zone where Arizona State has struggled mightily this year if those are issues of will or skill is it up to Manny Wilkins to decide and make the read and check down and audible out when he sees something that he could maybe make work when he's down in the red zone or is he just running the plays that are called In Arizona State's first red zone appearance, Nikhil Harry was split out to the far right, Thomas Graham on him, no safety over the top. Arizona State hands the ball off to Eno Benjamin, way behind the line of scrimmage. He tries to work his way up the right side of the field, where you had two receivers who didn't buy on the fact that there was going to be a a pass at all. They both crash down, linebackers get in, offensive line doesn't do a great job blocking. Eno Benjamin loses eight yards, Brandon Reese has to come in and kick a field goal. On Arizona State's second red zone trip, Nikhil Harry, again, on the right side of the field. No safety over the top. Just one-on-one with Thomas Graham. What do they do? Put Kyle Williams in motion, run him right over next to Nikhil Harry, throw a pass to Nikhil that would essentially be, if he was tackled where he caught the ball, a one-yard gain. They don't try to throw for the first down. They try to get it to Nikhil and have him make a play. It doesn't work out. They read the play because they crowd up the side of the field where Nikhil might have been able to overpower Thomas Graham had they gone to the air there and taken advantage of the fact that he wasn't being doubled. They don't do that, though. And Brandon Reese has to kick another field goal. Brandon Reese's third field goal of the day, and and good for Brandon Reese. This is the second year in a row he's gone three for three on field goals against Oregon, and he needed it because three games in a row now, Brandon Reese has missed a makeable field goal. He's now up to 14 for 18 on the year. Higher percentage made than last year, but when you miss every week, then you remind people that you're not exactly superhuman. And so, you know, you start to hear some grumblings that, you know, his inconsistency was causing some anxiety amongst the fan base. But he goes three for three. And ultimately, if ASU can keep him off the field for any one of those three field goals, they win the game. It's a maddening offense inside the red zone. It's like everything just shuts down and Arizona State doesn't know what to do in crowded, tight spaces. Super frustrating that Brandon Reese's third field goal was 29 yards. A field goal inside 30 yards is just a a failure of execution. But, you know, so how much of that's on Manny? How much of that's on the coaching staff? Because they sure they didn't target Nikhil quite a bit, most targeted receiver in the game. Even though Oregon's Justin Herbert really only throws the ball to Dylan Mitchell, like that's his whole gimmick is throwing the ball to Dylan Mitchell. And Nikhil still got more more targets than Dylan Mitchell. Had over 100 yards receiving for the fourth time this year. Goes over 1,000 yards receiving, so good for him. But at the same time, there are times when it, it's obvious that he could probably be helpful and they don't necessarily go to that. Here's what it reminds me of. Here's what it reminds me of. Let's say that uh, any X-Men fans out there, uh, P.S., uh, rest in peace, Stan Lee was a big fan. Um, he didn't create my favorite comic book characters, but, uh, he created all the most popular ones that allowed my favorites to exist in that universe. And so, um, you know, a few people listen to this podcast and, and, uh, and it, it <laughs> I don't know if it matters to them, but rest in peace, Stanley. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's talk a little bit about a Stanley character to make my point about Nikhil Hare. Let's go with Spider-Man. Let's go with Spider-Man. So, Spider-Man shoots webs either out of his wrists in one version of the comic, or out of cartridges that, as a Wonder Boy scientist, that he invents uh, in in the other set. I'm not sure which is more believable. And uh, you know, when they introduce uh, Peter Parker in, in in the movies, and it's a movie that involves his origin story, they always go through him discovering that he has this ability or that he can use this ability. And so if you remember back to the original uh, Spider-Man movie where Tobey Maguire was playing it, he's just in his room like, you know, shoots Webb at the lamp and knocks it over and causes Aunt May to have to, you know, want to come in and talk to him and all that stuff. Uh, Using Nikhil Harry, to me, in abundance is fantastic because you're showing, you know, you have that ability, that's what helps make your offense go. But not using him in those specific situations reminds me of if you had a superhero with a superpower and the only time that they didn't use that superpower or put it on display is in a situation where they actually needed to use it. Peter Parker fell off a building and he totally had the ability to use his webbing to shoot it out hit the next building over and then swing to safety sure he's been shooting web all day long but the one time that he needs to use it he's not going to doesn't make a lot of sense if Spider-Man's not your thing what about Magneto guy can build or bend move metal with his mind all kinds of metal So what if they arrested him and put him in jail and the jail had metal bars and that was the one time he chose not to use his powers was to bend the bars and walk right out of prison. That's how I feel about seeing Arizona State in the red zone, Nikhil Harry in single coverage with nobody over the top, no safety there to help. And you don't go to him or you don't go to him in a way that would put you in a position uh, to, to, to get the first down. I look at that, and I say, you know, yeah, it's obvious you have the superpower, it's obvious you're using the superpower, but the superpower is meant to be used the most at the time that it's needed most. So here we are complaining about Nikhil Harry's usage in a game where he was targeted more than than ever before, and I know that some fans have almost gotten to the point where they There's like an ironic frustration with the fact that it took Arizona State as long as it did to figure out that you do need to feed that beast over and over and over again. But they're doing it now, right? They're doing it now. Just not in every single occasion that I might personally find it prudent. I'm not a coach. Who cares what I think? But I thought those situations stood out to me because obviously if they turn any one of those field goals into a touchdown, they win. And that's what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to win. You play to win the game. Hello. So let's talk about some of the other things that happened in this game. Uh, the freshman, uh, you, you might want to beat up on them for the way that they played in that first half. But a Sherry Crosswell getting an interception, Cam Phillips getting an interception, Jermaine Lole getting a tackle for loss, Chase Lucas getting a tackle for loss, Tyler Johnson being in on a Kalen Curse Thomas sack. Uh, Merlin Robertson coming in at halftime and limiting uh, an offense that had 364 yards and 28 points in the first half to 85 total yards and 3 points in the second half he had a touchdown saving tackle he had 6 tackles total rushed uh, Justin Herbert on another 3rd down play completely changed the complexion of the game I cannot believe that guy is a freshman (laughs) doesn't look like a freshman He's like Vont. He's like young Vontez with a with, <laughs> with composure. And yes, I'm saying it after he served a, a first half suspension, but um you gotta have a little bit of nastiness in you if you're gonna be compared to Vontez. So that was something that I definitely thought was interesting. Uh, was the way that the freshmen made those adjustments and I think really showed what could ultimately be a really bright future for Arizona State in the secondary um, as far as the linebackers and AL recruits all over the country. They eat that up. I talked to Noah Pola Gates this week, four star recruit out of Williamsfield High School. Penn State wants him. He's taking an official visit. Nebraska wants him. He's taking an official visit. You know, he's taking an official visit to Alabama next week. And why does Arizona State speak to him and why might he ultimately commit to Arizona State above all those others? Because he looks out in the field and he sees a bunch of freshmen. Now, obviously, you can't just always play all the freshmen that come in unless you're Georgia at quarterback. But you can't do that, right? The best players will play. But knowing that the best players will play is something that drives players to not only get ready, but stay ready. I talked to Arizona State commit Alonzo Hall this week, who committed to Arizona State out of Reseda, California, after taking an official visit uh, during the UCLA game this last week. And that was one of the things that he pointed out. He loves that the best, most prepared players will play, because that lets him know, A, if I prepare myself and I get ready... I'm going to be rewarded for it. It's not going to be political. It's not going to be seniority. It's going to be the best, most ready player. And he knows that it's not just going to be the way that it is. Arizona State has switched out people that are starting games all over the place. You see Jalen Bates on the bench now. You see George Lee getting less snaps. Jermaine Lole didn't even really get it. He got in a game at San Diego State. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's cute. He's from California. That's good to get him in, in California. That's something that I would promise a recruit when I'm playing Madden 2014. Like, I'll schedule a game in your home state and I'll put you in and please commit. You know, I was like, oh, that's cute. Well, no, Jermaine Lole is your starter now because he earns it week in and week out. So Alonzo Hall sees that and he says, wow, you don't just have to get ready. You'll be rewarded for getting ready, sure, but you got to stay ready. Playing young players also motivates veterans to be better, to stay better. And that's what he said he wants. He doesn't want to just come in and make an impact. He wants to stay making an impact because there are people that will take his job the way that he is attempting to take somebody else's you want players with that mindset you want players that are that are going to come that are going to be in it for the long haul that understand that competition is about making the the team its absolute best um and that aren't ultimately going to be people who decide that they don't want to be on the team anymore because that's the type of situation that you're running so just an absolute huge shout out to the freshmen and the way that they played uh, Darian Butler got a little bit shaken up. We'll see what the story is with him. But, you know, this defense heading into to University of Arizona, uh, despite how young they are, you've seen that they can be reliable. You saw the tale of two halves. An Oregon team that was six for eight on third down in the second half came out and was one for eight on third down in the second half. Or, I'm sorry, six for eight in the first half, one for eight in the second half, right? So, you know, this is it's encouraging all these young players at the same time it's a little scary right you want dependability you want people who know what they're doing you don't want people who are having to learn lessons in the game it's nice that they're learning but you don't want them to have to learn from the fact that mistakes were made in the first place uh you know benjamin to me stood out i've mentioned him already um But I hope you're enjoying what might essentially be the greatest single season uh, in in the history of any Arizona State running back. I remain unconvinced that he can duplicate it, especially if you lose three offensive linemen. But so much of what he does involves breaking tackles at the first level, at the second level, being shifty, finding holes, being aggressive that maybe there won't be that much of a, of, of a dip, but I, I do believe it will be tough to duplicate what he's doing. I'd be happy to eat my words on that, but, I mean, if there's one thing that Arizona State fans understand, it's that a young offensive line equals growing pains. Not only for your running back, but your quarterback as well. One of the other things that that, uh, I I wanted to take note of, um, Autzen Stadium. Not a big fan of the city of Eugene. Reminds me a little bit of where I'm from. Uh, And don't get me wrong, I love where I'm from absolutely love where i'm from but there's a city two hours north of where i'm from called billings montana and eugene reminds me a little bit of billings montana if billings had big time college football it's not the greatest city in the world but i tell you what that stadium is like a ferrari in a trailer park it is too nice for that area but it is undeniably nice probably the best college football stadium I've ever been to had a chance to tour it this summer didn't have a chance to see it full of fans and uh, really enjoyed it if you get a chance to come up for a game highly highly recommend it the fans are not terrible to visitors from what I understand maybe you had a different experience And, 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 and it's very possible with a 730 kickoff you got people drinking courage for 12 hours before the game. Some people, you know, you get to the point where you have too much courage, you're not even able to formulate any insults to hurl at the opposition. But I think that, you know, I, I think that overall that was a positive experience. And I, I, I think that this team, you know, most of which will be back when they go back in, in two years if it's not one of the times that, that Arizona State ultimately skips playing uh, the Ducks. And I think that they'll be ready to go. I think almost success helps breed eventual success. My opinion. Could be wrong. Uh, c- a couple of other just glaring uh, weaknesses. I feel like it's, it's continue to be issues with Arizona State not necessarily having a pass-catching tight end. Uh, Nolan Matthews, who officially visited uh, from the state of Texas uh, last week, you, you hope that that guy is the real deal because... Arizona State was in third and long all day. They went three for 17 on third down. And if... If the only thing that you can do to try to get yourself from having second and longs and third and longs is run the ball, if you're not able to do anything other than try to get a deep pass on first down and keep your first downs going, 3 of 17, you got to understand, that's really bad. They have three first downs also against San Diego State, so it's not unprecedented for this team. Rob Likens has definitely had some struggles. Manny Wilkins has had some struggles with this offense. Moving the ball in general but I don't know it it feels like it's probably been a much longer time since Arizona State had that completion or conversion percentage. What is that? Somebody with a calculator? Like 17 18% on third down conversions? That's that's putrid. That's very bad. I think Arizona State even 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 games where Arizona State really struggled offensively. At Oregon, I think they were like 8 of 16. I think at Colorado, they were 5 of 11. To only convert 17%, and to get yourself in a situation where you have 17 third downs in the first place, that is rough. All right, anyway, that's all I've got as far as you know, recapping the game and ranting on the literature and bringing up Marvel characters. Uh, let's get into some of your comments. Again, the question that I asked you was, knowing what you know about where Arizona State is, which is exactly the same place that it was last year. What's your feeling about the program? Did they progress? Did they regress the same? Uh, A lot of really interesting responses. So let's get to those. Up, let's take a look at some of the answers on DevilsDigest.com. And again, uh, thanks for everything Rubino does for the podcast and, and for me. It was an absolute pleasure to cover the game with him up in Eugene. Make sure that you subscribe to DevilsDigest.com. Uh, but Kyle Smith6 uh, on, on the Devils Huddle premium message board there says, um, pretty simple. Uh, He believes that uh, defensively, yes, they have progressed. Offensively, they have absolutely not progressed. And he says he is cautiously optimistic about the overall program direction. I think that's fair. I mean, the statistics definitely back up that they have made a huge step forward defensively. But you also kind of have to put that in the context of the fact that uh, under uh, defensive coordinator Phil Bennett last year, when Todd Graham was a little bit more hands-off, the defense was already sort of, Um, trending in that direction would the defense be doing what it's doing this year um, with Phil Bennett there uh, instead of Danny Gonzalez because again you'd still have uh, Antonio Pierce you'd still have the recruits that were landed Um, Phil Bennett knew enough to start Kobe Williams last year so I think that he'd probably have no issue going to young guys who perform um, but I mean, d- defensively, you do have to admit that they they were trending this way. It's it it would be interesting to delve into how much of the continued improvement, because it is continued improvement, actually has to do with Danny Gonzalez and the three three five. But yeah, I mean that that's definitely something to ponder is whether or not they'd have some of these same results with with Phil Bennett paired with with Herm Edwards. That certainly would have been a- an interesting comparison um santan devil on the devil's digest message board he said yes i believe the program has stepped forward to a better place today than it was one year ago for a few reasons number one asu is now playing some semblance of defense um, number two the offensive line play is more fundamentally sound less a liability and more an asset and number three recruiting seams and seams is in italics to be more focused not only on filling needs and creating long-term depth, but seems to be tracking better with attainable recruits. That's some pretty good feedback right there. And he also says, the 2018 squad seems more competitive and he thinks the 2018 team would beat the 2017 team head-to-head. Lobo Jangles uh, on the Devil's Digest message board, he says, this season has been so perplexing, you can usually put a finger on what you're missing as far as talent um, and what the deficiencies are, but he said things seem positive. But here we are again, where we usually are, really don't know what to think. Um, it's just perplexing overall. Let's see. Uh, Doxy Devil on the devilsdigest.com message board says as long as the recruiting stays positive, then this is no question a good starting point for Herm and the staff. The defense is good enough to stay away from blowouts. And that, along with limiting giving up so many long plays, is noteworthy. With more talent, Danny Gonzalez and the defensive staff will gain national attention. Better find more money for Danny Gonzalez and Antonio Pierce, probably white also. Uh, so here's the deal. Um, they, they, I think that Doxy Devil is definitely uh, right about the fact that them staying away from being blown out is, is an encouraging thing. At the same time, a loss is a loss, and I think a lot of people are probably banking on the defense being better as the players in the defense progress. So you just want to know, as an Arizona State fan, that these freshmen that are playing right now, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg as far as what they're able to do. Um, If these guys peak early and they don't progress, then you probably continue being an average team on the whole. But if the offense improves and the defense even levels off, then I think you're in a much better place. Uh, let's see here. Uh, at PJMCKSR86, definitely a step forward. Several freshmen got valuable playing time and performed well. The offense is a bit of a disappointment. Eno and Nikhil stepped up, but other receivers are often MIA. Special teams are inconsistent. The recruiting is better, but I'm not convinced Herm Edwards will consistently win 10 games a year and have us in Rose Bowls. Um, Let's see. And then Forget11 on the Devil's Digest uh, message board said, A lot of people on these boards are saying the offense is disappointing. We are pretty objectively a top, top 25 offense this year. With Manny Wilkins at quarterback, why is that so disappointing? We were definitely better on offense in 2018 compared to 2017. I don't know if that's objectively true. Um, I mean, they're definitely running the ball better. Uh, Nikhil Harry's having about the same level season that he had last year while Kyle Williams has dropped off. You're getting some production from Frank Darby, but it seems to be inconsistent. Manny Wilkins is turning the ball over less, but very often the team is failing to even score 30 points. Um, So let me fact check this real quick, because I know that Arizona State is not um, a top 25 offense, but let's just take a look at last year versus this year and the offensive numbers. This year, they're averaging 29.8 points per game, which is good for 64th out of 130 teams. Last year, they averaged 31.8, which is good for 42nd. So there's a big drop-off just in overall ranking in points per game, but actually, statistically, it ends up only being about 1.4 points difference. Um, uh, The offense is throwing the ball for 240 yards a game this year and rushing for 190 So 240 and 190. And last year, those numbers were 256, which is more, and 176, which is less. So about two more yards of offense, two more yards of total offense per game, two more points per game. So I don't think, I mean, the the numbers don't back up that the offense has improved. Um... But uh, I, I, I can see maybe where feeling like having the ability to run the ball they do makes for a better offense. But I, I would say that they're worse in the red zone. Um, it, they're not much worse statistically, but it, it's definitely not an improvement um, 2018 to 2017. So uh, I'm not sure where those numbers came from. Uh, might just be feeling-based, but Arizona State is definitely not a top-25 offense. Had they been a top-25 offense, we're probably talking about a 10 or 11-win team uh, this season instead of you know trying to avoid being 6-6. Six and six. So let's check out some of the responses that came in on Twitter. Uh, Twitter uh, overwhelmed me. Usually when I put these out, I get probably about 5 or 6, and... Um, I don't know if it was the nature of the question that was asked or if um, if more people are listening to the podcast, I'm not sure, but 45 responses uh, to this tweet, um, including lots of side conversations going on, so I'll try to read uh, a few of the ones that I feel like stood out to me. Uh, the first response I got from Devil Tukey at Devil Tukey on Twitter said, Mixed bag, there have been steps that bode well for the future, but far, far too many missed opportunities this season. An 8-4 and four season was easily within reach and would have generated real optimism. And uh, R. Scott Jones on Twitter follows up and says, Devil Tukey nails it. What's also disappointing for me is that we couldn't capitalize on a historical bad year for the South with the talent we had on offense. Not many times do you have quote, among the best ever, unquote, at two skill positions at the same time. Uh, At Steve Feen on Twitter says, yes, playing as many freshmen as they have on defense, establishing Eno as a star moving forward and establishing recruiting pipelines. He believes this year is a success. Uh, And Sherry Brooks agrees with him, believes that this year is a success for those same reasons. Uh, At Leighton Lavelle on Twitter says that, record this year doesn't matter as long as... uh, they develop on defense and in recruiting. It helps, too, that they never got blown out and showed continuous resolve. So we have somebody coming in with the idea that the record doesn't matter as long as they show improvement in those two areas that, that, that matter most. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, you, you're going to need to score points, and, and offensively, uh, talent-wise, they're definitely going to fall off uh, next year, you know, unless they do some major development over the, over the fall and spring. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, if you come in saying the record doesn't matter as long as you show improvement, um, then, you know, you're not going to be dissatisfied with what's happened this year because they've definitely improved on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, at MCV03851 on Twitter says, Step forward in my mind. The team is more competitive, all the freshmen getting experience, and the defense should be better, but the quarterback worries me next year. Uh, at Mark Wallström on Twitter, far exceeded expectations. The defensive staff is A+. Plus. Recruiting class saw the field and shined. Offensive line coaching is a huge improvement. Competitive in every game. Head coach established identity as a tough defense, run first, and best man plays. Huge improvements. Um, ASU underscore superfan on Twitter says, No, I'm very pleased with the new staff members on defense and the young talent they brought in. But ASU's failure to take advantage of its talent on offense left us with a disappointing record. There's really no excuse for the CU and San Diego State losses. The old staff might have got more wins in 2018. At True Playoff on Twitter says, I still feel stuck in neutral. While the defense looks bright in the future, the offense is going to be breaking in a new quarterback and replacing Nikhil Harry. Not sure you can win many 21-17 games in the Pac-12. Also concerned about the offseason and retaining key assistants. I think that every, this is me talking again, I think that every single Arizona State fan um, needs to remember what it was like under Todd Graham as far as the assistants moving on. I mean, just right now if you look at the Todd Graham coaching tree with, with guys that came with him to Arizona State, you know, the offensive coordinator of Notre Dame, Chip Long was the tight ends coach here, a wide receivers coach uh, that replaced Delvon uh, Alexander, uh, Jay Norvell is the head coach out at out at nevada you have you know mike norvell who's the head coach out at memphis you know you have all these guys that are working elsewhere even uh even keith patterson is the, the defensive coordinator to resurgent utah state so you know there's a lot of um there there was a lot of movement as far as assistants leaving i mean especially the offensive line coach i think what was it josh henson that came in for like two weeks uh <laughs> and got hired by oklahoma state and uh and then they had to replace him with Rob Sale, and that turned into uh, Dave Christensen. Um, so I think that you should definitely be worried about whether someone's going to come pluck these assistants away. Um, and I think that uh, I I I would remain permanently worried about that because obviously you know Ray Anderson felt that they'd just be able to keep um, Bennett and uh, and Napier, you know, and all and Napier is now the head coach at Louisiana, and and Bennett took a year off for health reasons, but. You know, when they when, when, when Arizona State uh, and their leadership thought that they'd be able to retain assistance by removing Todd Graham, that wasn't the case. And so to think that that's going to be the case um, under Herm Edwards is definitely naive. People are going to be looking for the best opportunity for them. And that includes every single person on this staff that you feel like uh, is successful. There's absolutely no loyalty in this business uh, whatsoever, you just have to be, uh, you know, happy that they're there when they're there, and hope for the best possible results. Um, and it puts you in a weird position to root for them to do well, but not so well they leave. Uh, being a fan is a is, is a really interesting experience. Um, at Will Novak 13 on Twitter says, "This is a step back. How many early season losses would have gone the other way if we weren't changing game plans every week, installing new systems, etc.?" I have a hard time believing we wouldn't have been had a better record at this point if we stayed the course, coaching-wise. Uh, at CA underscore devil, California devil, on Twitter. Um, he just, all he did was include a quote from Ray Anderson, uh, which is a, which is a pretty fair play uh, as far as what the original question was. Quote, I don't think there's any coach on staff who would tell you honestly that he would be satisfied with being 7-5, and five, second in place in a week back 12 south, very frankly, and, and going to a low-level bowl game. So he didn't even include his own opinion. He just included Ray Anderson's, and I think that that's more than fair, that you, you should absolutely be able to use Ray Anderson's standard when evaluating the hire that Ray Anderson made. Uh, at Sir Minus on Twitter says, I think it has. While there is much to improve on, we aren't embarrassing ourselves in any category. Almost everything has improved, and our losses are very close. So there are, it feels like there's a lot of people that replied to this that don't believe the whole Ricky Bobby the second place is first loser type type thing. They they, they don't mind uh, the fact that uh, Arizona State uh, looks a little bit more competitive in some of these losses than they did before. Uh, at Todd Bussat on Twitter says step forward in most areas recruiting California over Texas is huge. The offensive line has an identity. Defense is aggressive but also smart. Would have liked to see more playing time for future quarterbacks. Uh, which seems to be a continued issue. Uh, Arizona State fans have been asking for that forever. Uh, can definitely tell this team has bought in on Coach Herm Edwards and the staff. Feel good about the direction of the program. Uh, let's do a couple more. Let's see here. Uh, at John Elder on Twitter, we've only been season ticket holders for six years, and traveled from California for every home game, which gets expensive. But this year was well worth it. I saw energy in this team. Win or lose, every game was entertaining. Every game could have been won, not one blowout loss. Uh, let's see here uh, at Az Sean O. Yes, the youth movement is icing on the cake, but we put an end to the doormat of a defense our program was becoming known for. That's worth a mediocre year, a buyout, and a staff churn if the solution sticks and our defense becomes our DNA. And I think I think that uh, you know they, they've they've let people in a few times to what ultimately the goal is here, right? Like you hear Stanford's name bandied about as far as having an overall identity for what they want to do. And, and, and I think that that's the ultimate goal. But also Al Luganville at times has pointed out the fact that and nobody talks about Washington being 0-12 anymore because now every year they have an opportunity to potentially go 12-0. and 0. So all you need to do is go out, develop that consistency, and have one year of really good success. And then if you can ride that wave, people won't talk about your deficiencies anymore. Nobody will remember that you were bad, right? I mean, the Arizona State is unfortunately in the same place that University of Colorado is, or that the the Oregon State University is, knowing that they would be absolutely embraced if they could just Find some way to to have one successful season and then build on that, uh, and and that's the really really tough thing is building that foundation, having that foundation be stable in a business in which showing that you can build a foundation like that creates opportunities for you to go elsewhere, and then to build on to build on that. So um, it really is all about uh, really is all about consistency. Oh my goodness, there's like 20 responses that I haven't even got to. Uh, so what I'll do is I will include the original tweet in the article on devilsdigest.com. And if you feel like engaging uh, with some of these awesome people that, that, that had a lot to say on this topic, go ahead, click on that tweet, scroll down, keep the conversation going. Uh, and if you like, it's always helpful to get a subscription to devilsdigest.com. Uh, I think if you buy an annual membership, it comes out to be like $8.33 a month, which is more than worth it. Um, That's all I have got for this week. Really appreciate the engagement. appreciate everybody uh, that has been listening. If you have a free moment, um, (laughs) the iTunes reviews have had a really interesting week. So I'm not even asking you to leave a review. You can do whatever you want. I'm not going to, you know, uh, I'm not going to ask you for anything. Uh, But if you want a good laugh, you should go on there and read a couple of them uh, because they're definitely not all positive. But if there's one thing that I really enjoy, um, (laughs) it's reading some of these, these one star reviews uh, for this podcast. They absolutely make my day. Uh, There was one that was left today uh, and it just said, stop preaching. (laughs) <laughs> and and it was from at Sungmo. And it was a one-star review. It said, huge ASU fan, so I listened to all the ASU podcast. But I stop listening this podcast. Him and Chili Dude is the worst of all ASU-related podcast. Stop preaching, complaining, and stop swallowing saliva when you speak. It's so annoying. If you can't talk without making saliva-swallowing noise, then you shouldn't be making a podcast. So appreciate the advice. I apologize for the way my mouth moves and sounds, um, and I will definitely take that under advisement. want to give a special shout-out to Brad Denny, um, who I believe uh, left a five-star review and compared me or my life to uh, uh, an Everybody Loves Raymond fever dream. Uh, which I think I'd take as a compliment. I don't know. Huge Everybody Loves Raymond fan. If you've never seen the episode where him and his wife argue over who's going to take the suitcase upstairs, um, that's the most truthful half hour of television that I have ever watched as a married man. So, again, appreciate everybody who's listening. Make sure that you, uh, if you want to leave a review, uh, I will read it uh, or don't. I don't care. Um, and and uh, make sure that if you can subscribe to devilsdigest.com uh, so that they can keep bringing you informed and excellent Arizona State University athletics based content we'll catch you next time
1: I was living in a devil town
0: I didn't
1: know it was a devil town oh lord it really brings me down About the Devil Town All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself In the Devil Town Devil town, didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, who brings me down about the devil town?